You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. I'm going to talk to you about John Wesley for just a little bit. When he was 32, 33, 34 years of age, around um, the seven, 17, um, 35, 36, 37, right in there, he was in Savannah working, um, setting up orphanages, uh, preaching, setting up churches, uh, doing Bible studies, all those kind of things. And he met a young lady and fell madly in love with her. Her name was Sophia Christina Hopley. She was pretty, she was uh, intelligent, she was committed to the Lord, and he loved her. But he didn't know what to do. So he had a friend there with him by the name of uh, Charles Dolomot. And Charles Dolomot took three pieces of paper. And on the first piece of paper, he wrote Mary, and he put it in a hat. Then he, on the second piece, he wrote, think uh, not of it this year. And he put that in the hat. And then he wrote, think not of it anymore. And he put that in the hat. And so they prayed, and Charles reached down into the hat and pulled out the piece that said, think of it no more. And it broke his heart. It broke John Wesley's heart. And he left Savannah, went back to England, and um, there gave himself to the ministry of evangelism. He started what we know as Wesleyanism, Methodism, uh, his Sunday schools, his um, accountability groups. He was preaching. Of course, he preached often in the fields. And um, when he was there, he found another young lady that he fell in love with. Her name was um, Murray. Uh, I can't think of her first name. Her last name was Murray. He fell in love with her, wanted to marry her, but did not know what to do. So he thought this time what he would do, her name was Grace Murray. He thought this time what he would do is he would list everything that he felt like he needed in a wife, and he listed seven things. She had to be a good housekeeper. She had to be a good nurse, a good companion, a good friend, fellow laborer in the gospel, and there had to be obvious fruit in her life of the Spirit and obvious fruit that she labored for the Lord. So then he sat down with the list and he wrote out her pros and her cons and he came to the conclusion that this was the woman for him. And he felt like this was the sign that he needed. He told his brother Charles and his brother Charles said, absolutely not. Now, you know, Charles Wesley wrote all the hymns. Well, his brother Wesley said, absolutely not. You're not to marry her. It will ruin your evangelistic ministry. And listen to what happened. It's a very detailed uh, story of this. Um, he, Charles Wesley left after he told John, you cannot marry. He went over to Grace's house and said, this is not going to happen. You cannot marry him. You would break my heart if you do that. She left, met another guy, and Charles Wesley went there knowing John was on his way to get her, and Charles Wesley married her to the guy before he could get there. Now, you want to talk about family interference. Well, 
At 47 years of age, John Wesley met yet another lady, Mary. And uh, he felt like this is the one for me, and so he married her. In fact, Charles introduced him to her, but did not want them to get married. Charles didn't want him to get married at all, but he did not want him to marry her. They went off and got married, and it was a horrible mistake. It was sad. They had a sad marriage. Uh, they had a sad life, in, and I don't say this at all to be funny. She would knock him to the floor, and Wesley had long hair, and she would grab him by the hair and drag him across the floor. And uh, she would go into his study, and she would get his sermons, and she would tear his sermons into pieces. That wouldn't happen but one time. But she, she, would, she would go in there and get his sermons and tear them to pieces. And after 20 years, uh, she left him. Um, a number of children, and 20 years later now, he's 67 at this, at this point in life. And Wesley writes, he says, um, I did not leave her. I would not send her away, but I will not go and get her. And so he ends his ministry that way. Now, when you hear of somebody like Wesley going through that, you think, you know, how shall we then live? You know, what in the world? Is there any hope for me uh, in anything? But here was Wesley in these big, important decisions of his life, looking and searching for the will of God and putting some kind of test out there to see, God, is this the one, is this not? Now, we all do this. This is where we are. We all struggle with this. Before I came here, I struggled in praying, God, do I ask you for a sign? Do I look for a sign? What do I do? How do I, how do I know? How is this affirmed in my soul? And God gave me a very clear affirmation about coming to this church. And it was not in this country. <laughs> I was in Japan when he gave it to me. So uh, take your copy of God's Word because this is exactly what you find Gideon doing. Uh, Judges chapter 6. Gideon's going to come and he's going to ask God for a sign. In fact, that becomes something that he begins to do on a regular basis. Uh, he begins to ask the Lord, God, give me a sign. Now, is there, is there a place for that? Is it right? Is it wrong to ask God for a sign? If you're there in Judges chapter 6, I'm going back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I'm going to read you one verse. Just listen to Deuteronomy 6 verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, if you want to know what happened there, you have to go back to Exodus chapter 17. And in Exodus chapter 17, Moses is um, talking to that generation that did this. And he says to them, he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, they were wanting water. God gives them water from the rock. You know, they were whining about that. But let me take you over to Psalm 78 because Psalm 78 gives you a, a little bit of an insight into their heart. Psalm 78 verse 18 says, And in their heart they put God to the test by asking food according to 
And this little word here, desire, means according to their lusts, uh, according to their ambition. This was apparently what had happened, is that they didn't like the food God was giving them, and they wanted water, and they come to God, and they said, if you don't give us what we want, we, we don't believe you're God. We don't believe that you're with us. Now, it had to do, and if you don't catch this, you're going to miss everything else. It had to do with the, with the state of their heart. It had to do with how they were asking. They were essentially demanding God to do something uh, that they wanted and not what God was wanting for them. So it goes down to the heart. As many things do, it goes to what is the intention of your heart? What is the attitude of your heart? And I have to say, and I'll say this up front with Gideon, um, if I had been God, I might would have zapped him at one point. Uh, but I think God uh, is so patient with him because he understands the heart of Gideon and, and what Gideon is struggling with. So there you go. Now go back to Judges chapter 6. And tonight what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to show you two things. I'm going to show you the problems that come with seeking for signs. And then I'm going to show you some principles uh, of God's guidance. So in chapter 6 of Judges, you have got Gideon asking for multiple signs. The first time you remember back in the early part in verse um, 17, Gideon says to the angel of the Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Then you come over to verse um, 36 of chapter 6. And Gideon says to God, if you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so when he arose the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Now, let me just stop right there because I want to get into the first point, and the first point is this, the problems that you have with seeking a sign from God. Now, before I launch into that, let me explain the dew and the fleece. Uh, if you recall, in the earlier part of chapter 6, we were told that the Midianites had taken everything. Gideon, at one point, had sheep. He doesn't have sheep anymore. All he's got is, is a fleece. He's got a piece of garment, a fleece, you know, you shear the, the, the sheep and you've got this piece of wool that's here. He probably used it to sleep on or to cover up with, um, but that's all he's got. He doesn't have sheep anymore. The Midianites have taken them. They've taken all the donkeys, we were told. They've taken all the oxen. They come and they take everything, but he's got this fleece. Now listen, in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, God's people are oftentimes associated with sheep. Um, and you almost can look at this and say, is this fleece a picture of Israel uh, where they have very little of anything left? They have been fleeced, so to speak. Everything they've got has been taken, and all that's left is just this skin. 
that is there. So now put that there. Do in the Old Testament is always seen as the blessing of God. In fact, you'll read over and over in the Old Testament that uh, it is called the dew of heaven. The dew of heaven, the dew of heaven, the dew of heaven. And so dew is the blessing of God. It is seen as the blessing of God. So when Gideon comes and he says, Lord, I'm going to put this fleece out, you can almost think this is a picture of Israel, and I want your blessing to fall on it. And if your blessing falls on it, then I will know you're going to bless Israel um, and use me to deliver them, and the ground all around would represent the nations and that your judgment will fall on the nations. Now, he'll reverse that, but I just... Why do I give you that? I don't know. I just figure it's interesting, and you probably uh, would find it interesting like I did. Um, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting part of the story. Is that what is going on here? Well, he puts the fleece out. That's going to be the sign for him. Is this an affirmation? Remember, the first sign I told you was confirmation. Are you really who you are? Are you, am I really talking to the angel of the Lord here? You give me a sign that's confirmation. Now, this in verse 36 and 37 is a sign of affirmation that I want to affirm that you're going to use me, that I'm the guy that you're going to use to deliver your people. Now, let me show you a couple of things, really three things under this one thing of problems here. Number one, Gideon already knew the will of God. This is not an issue of knowing God's will. That's not the thing. God had already made it very clear. Listen to what he says. Gideon says to God, if you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. That's, he's telling God what God has already told him. God, this is what your will is. He comes in verse 37 at the end of the verse, and he's going to say the same thing again. I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. So the, the issue there is not him searching for God's will. What he's doing here is this. He is looking for some assurance. He's looking to be submissive. He's looking to submit himself to the will of God. So the issue is not knowing the will of God. The issue is submitting to the will of God. Now look at the signs that God had already given him. God had sent the angel of the Lord there. The angel of the Lord there uh, speaks to him. And every time the angel of the Lord speaks to him, it's positive. It's encouraging. It's something uplifting. And every time, you know, Gideon responds to him, it is in the doldrums and it's negative. And the angel of the Lord keeps speaking to him and encouraging him. He says, okay, okay, okay. I want to know, are you really who I think you are? I'm going to go get a sacrifice and come back here and sacrifice to you. The angel says, go ahead. Go, I'll wait. And so he goes and he brings the sacrifice. Listen, fire comes up out of the rock. It consumes the sacrifice. And the angel of the Lord ascends. He goes up as the fire goes up, as the smoke goes up. Now, I call that a pretty, that's a pretty good sign right there. Wouldn't you call that a good sign? 
Then you come to his dad, Joash, and the radical change. And we looked at this Sunday morning, the radical shift and change in his dad. He could see the difference in his own father that God had made in his father's life. That's a good sign. Uh, the Abiezrites, the change in the Abiezrites, his own people who wanted to kill him at one moment and then sometime later, they've shifted now. And then God brings him an army of 32,000 people. He doesn't have to do anything but blow a horn, and all of a sudden, here's 32,000 men, half-tribe of Manasseh, Asher, Naphtali, Zebulun, all of those tribes up around the Sea of Galilee, up in that area, they send 32,000 men. Now, I mean, you've got sign after sign after sign after sign. And yet, he wants another sign. God's already given him plenty of signs. But he already knew the will of God because he states it twice. The second thing is this. In the problem of seeking signs is that it can become an occasion for doubt. When he tells the Lord, God, I'm going to set this fleece out here on the ground, and I want the dew to wet it, and I want the ground all around it to be absolutely dry, let me tell you what it sounds like to me. God, I've got a hoop here, and if you'll jump through this hoop, then I will determine whether or not that's enough. And sometimes when you begin to ask God for signs, it begins to be this whole thing of trying to get God to jump through our hoops. Now, he's battling something. There's this internal struggle that's going on. Don't test the Lord. I keep remembering that. Keep thinking about that. But his struggle is not faith. His struggle is assurance. God, I just need some assurance. You know, years ago, there used to be this bumper sticker, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, the fact of the matter is God said it, that settles it, whether you believe it or not. It doesn't make any difference. However, let me tell you, God said it, I believe it. It's not the issue of do I believe God. The issue is the inner struggle of assurance in my own life. And I have that. And you have that. I'm just going to be honest with you, and I'm going to tell you, yes, you do. You struggle with that. I struggle with that. I told you a year ago, or a little over a year ago, I was struggling even asking God, God, can you let me know in some way about what I need to do about Valleydale. Well, here's the thing. Um, what we need to do is listen to the Word of God. I'm going to give you a couple of verses here. So let me give you a couple of these, and I want you just to hear the Word of God. Maybe you're struggling tonight. Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Psalm 37, 23 through 24, the steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. When he falls, now listen, am I going to stumble? Yes. Am I going to trip? Yes. Am I going to just, you know, fall on my face at times? Yes, but he will not be hurled headlong. That is, it's not going to be fatal because the Lord is the one who holds his hands. 
Psalm 48, 14, for such is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us till death. Isaiah 58, 11, and the Lord will continually guide you. When I set out a fleece, I need to ask myself the question, am I trying to discover God's will or is it that I know God's will and what I'm really struggling with is this whole issue of submitting to what I know God's will is? That's it right there. That's what we struggle with. Number three, setting out a fleece never ultimately meets your needs. Gideon wakes up the next morning. He wakes up and that fleece is sopping wet with dew. And the ground all around it is absolutely dry. In fact, the fleece is so wet that he can take it and he can wring it out and he can wring out an entire bowl of water. Now, listen to what happens. He goes back to the Lord. Here here we go, right here. And it was so, and when he arose early the next morning, squeezed the fleece, verse 38, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not let your anger burn against me. Now, when somebody asks this question in the Old Testament, Lord, do not let your anger burn against me, because several times you'll read that. You, you can know, they know, I'm aggravating. I am just pure T aggravating. And that's what he is here. And like I said, if I were God, I would have zapped him at that moment. Forget it. Just forget it. I'll get somebody else. Nobody's going to read your name in the book of Judges for the next 3,000 years. It'll be somebody else's name that's there. I'm moving on. You see, a sign wasn't enough. Now he wants, the next night, let the fleece be dry and all the ground around it be sopping wet. Signs never, listen to me, never produce certainty. They never produce certainty. You never are certain once you get the sign. Here's Gideon. Lord, I want you to make this fleece wet and all the ground dry. God does it. Well, I'm just not really sure about that. I'm not really certain. Let's do this. Let's reverse the process. Uh, when I was in Dallas and we were building the Criswell building, um, in the middle of all of that, when we were ready to really push and go, 9-11 took place. Uh, it hit. It happened. Uh, you know, everything, everything went belly up on the stock market the next day and the next week. And uh, everything just came to a grinding halt. The whole airline industry just stopped. Uh, the freakiest thing about being in Dallas, Texas, was that you never saw an airplane in the sky. And you, it, was, it was so stark because you're so used to it. Uh, and then it's not there. It not being there uh, caught your attention. Well, anyway, y'all remember what the economy was like just in the few weeks and months right after that, then everything began to turn around. And as everything started turning back around, uh, I geared back into saying, we've got to now move on this building because we were getting reports every single week, uh, building materials going back up, building materials going back up. We could have built the building at $44 million, cost 49. We could have built it at 44. We had $25 million in cash, $10 million in pledges, 
$35 million. By the time we got started, we were up another $3 million. Um, but for nine months, we battled and debated and talked and wondered and discussed and prayed, well, you know, if it's a sign, God will give us half in cash and half in pledges, having cash, half in pledges. Maybe that's the sign. We're looking, God, let us know, let us know. And while that went on for nine months, waiting for God to give a sign of when to get started, because God's already made it clear. I said, well, don't you think God's made it clear? Would $25 million in the bank make anything clear for you? <laughs> and then $10 million in pledges on top of that, and pledges continuing to come in to the tune of another $3 million? You know, I said, guys, you know, here, here we are, and what we did is while we're wasting nine months of time, and while that building goes up 4 to $5 million, we're just sitting here wasting time looking for a sign when we should have done what God had already called us to do. Signs, listen, let me tell you something. Signs never satisfy. They never bring and produce certainty. Now, I've said all of that, this is what I want you to see. Gideon said, verse 39, don't let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more. Please let me take, uh, make a, a test once more with the fleece. Let it be dry on the surface, uh, on the fleece, and then let there be dew on all the ground. Now, verse 40 is just the grace and the patience and the kindness and the, and the long-suffering of our God. God did God's so patient with us. He walks with us. He's patient with us. Um, was it right for Gideon? And listen, there are commentators that, that debate this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Whether Gideon should not have done this or was it okay for him to do it, the fact of the matter is the big thing to me is this, is that God just was patient with him and did it. I would not have. But God is that kind of God. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Now, let me give you the second thing, and the second thing is this. I want you to look at some of the principles of God's guidance. What do I do when I'm seeking God's will, when I need to know, what is God leading me to do? Where does God want me to go? What is it that God is, uh, is, um, is trying to lead me into? Well, let me give you about five things, I think. Number one, the first thing is this, and, and this I think is so critical. Learn to lean on the God, on, on the guide. Learn to lean on the guide and stop stressing out about guidance techniques. Lean on the guide and stop stressing out over guidance techniques. What's the technique? How's he going to do? What's the test? How do we do this? What's this little thing and that little thing and all these? I can tell y'all something. I am not a detailed guy. That's why I don't bother with, with the... I, I, don't, I have no clue as to what came into this church Sunday. I don't look at that. I don't bother with that. Why? Because, we, because of Jeff McGookin. I don't worry with that stuff. 
There's somebody here that deals in details. I am not going to get into accounting and all of that. I'm not going to do it. God gave me a woman who finished first in her class in economics and business in three years. I don't deal with that. Now, if you want to deal with the perfect passive participle, that lights my fire. But now, I'm not going to mess with details like that. And we, listen, we get ourselves down in the weeds of the details about how is this going to work out and where will we be got this and that and the other. What we need to do, lean on the guide. Now, let me give you an illustration. Say tonight, uh, you got to fly to Miami, you know, call comes through here before the service is over and you got to leave and get out there to the airport and you're going to fly to what about a two-hour flight from here to Miami and you fly in there and you get in there about 12 or 12 30 when you get your luggage and you get a car now let me ask you what would you rather have when you go to Miami and I want to tell you I would rather drive almost anywhere in the world other than Miami um would you would you just assume me put you in the car with a map with a GPS, or would you like a Spanish-speaking, lifelong resident of Miami to be in the car with you? Give me the guide. Give me the guide. Well, listen, we've got the guide. He's promised he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He has promised that he will guide us with his eye on us. He is the God, and we need to lean on him and not be worried so much about the techniques of guidance. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul for his name. He, he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Did you hear all of that? He makes me lie down beside still waters. He, he, he makes me lie down in green paths. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You hear all the relational word in that? How relational God is. You say those couple of verses over and over and listen to how personal it gets. That's the guide. Guidance, number two, comes through the word of God. Don't ever do anything that you don't pass it through the word of God. God's word gives me principles and it gives me precepts. It gives me principles to guide me. It gives me precepts to instruct me. So with these principles and these precepts, I understand what God is telling me to do how God is telling me to do it. He's guiding me. He's instructing me. Now, let me just tell you this. God is far more interested in who you are right now than where you are. In fact, if you're not living in obedience and if you're not living um, in a daily walk with him, where you are really won't make any difference. Oh, I've got a great job what well, makes no difference, let me tell you, you may have a great job. It may be a great paying job. You may have great security there, but if you're not in God's will, let me tell you something, that is not a good place to be. The whole issue is who you are. 
I can be in a bad place, but if I am in God's will, I'm okay. So guidance comes through his word. He gives us his word. He gives us principles. He gives us precepts. Number three, God guides us by his peace. Let me take you to a little passage. Look at Colossians chapter three for just a moment. I was reading this early this morning and came across this, found this to be fascinating. Colossians chapter three, listen to what is said in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, does God guide us? Yes. How does he guide us? Well, one of the ways he guides us is he guides us with his peace. That word right there, brabuo in the Greek, it, it is an imperative. It's a present active imperative. I like that kind of stuff. And it is, it is, it is a command Paul is making under inspiration, and he says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Now, you think, well, that means dominate. That's a ruler kind of concept. Let me tell you what the word is in the Greek. Brabuo. It's a, it's a funny sounding word, brabuo. It is this. It means umpire. Where's Mark? Where did Mark go? It's umpire. That's the Greek word for um, umpire right there. And it means this. It means here is your life. And no matter what life is throwing at you, he's the umpire that determines whether it's a strike or a ball. So let his peace call your life. Let him call the game of your life. Because if you're doing that, then when you come to God, what do I need to do? Where do I need to go? What is this decision that peace begins to direct you. You get a settled peace in your life about some things. Number four, God's guidance comes through godly desires. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. He's working in me to will and to work his good pleasure. That is, he is putting in me what he wants in me. He's building into my life. Now listen to this. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. I need to let God work in my heart. And as he works in my heart, he'll give me the desires of my heart because the desires of my heart are going to be his desires. Man, that's what happened to me when I got saved. All the things that I wanted before I don't want those things now. God has changed my heart. He's changed my desires. We will have been married here in a couple of weeks now. I'm preaching tonight. I'm going to preach next Wednesday night. But the next Wednesday night, I'm going I'm to take her somewhere and remind her why she married me. Because we will celebrate 40 years married, having started off in kindergarten together. So, it's interesting to me that living with her for 40 years is what is on her heart is almost always on my heart. Because if it is what she wants, 
I find my heart wanting the same thing. Now, I can say that about her. I don't know if she can say that about me, but I can say that about her. What's on her heart is what's on my heart. Now, listen. When you walk daily with Christ, what is on the heart of God becomes what is on your heart. You see? And so how do I discern God's will? How do I know God's will? Well, listen, walk with him, and as you walk with him, he works his will in his way in your heart. He puts his longing, his desires in your heart, and pretty soon that becomes your desires. And you know what? When that's your desires, he gives you the desires of your heart. Now, let me give you the last thing, and it's this. God's guidance comes through godly counsel. You need godly counsel. Whenever you need counsel, who's the first person you go to? Your best friend. And your best friend may not be godly counsel. May not be the best place to go. But we go to our best friend because we're not really looking for counsel. We're looking for confirmation. Right? when probably what we need is confrontation. When the quarterback at Auburn calls a timeout to go to the side, when the quarterback at Alabama calls a timeout to go to the side, when the quarterback at Clemson calls a timeout to go to the side, I can promise you this, they're not calling me. They're not going over to the telephone and say, I'm going to call Mac Brunson and find out what play he thinks we ought to pull at this time. Who does he talk to? Saban or Sweeney. He talks to the guy who created the play. He talks to the guy who drew up the play. He talks to the guy who recruited him, who's trained him, who knows his arm, who knows his speed. All of that, he talks to the quarterback uh, coach or he talks to the head coach. That's who he's talking to. He doesn't go over and call me. And when you're in the midst of a situation where you need to make a decision, find godly counsel. And it may not be your best buddy. In fact, most of the time, it's probably not. But there is a God who created you, who made you, and he knows you best. Years ago, there was a young man who... um, was driving down the road and his car broke down. I think I've got a picture, I'm not sure. His car broke down and uh, he was off the side of the road under the hood looking at the engine, not knowing what to do. And he stood there and uh, two hours passed by and he was fidgeting with everything he could possibly fidget with, not knowing what to do with the thing, trying to get it started. When a guy pulled up across the road from him, walked across the road, walked across traffic, got over there, leaned over his shoulder, just watching to see what this young guy was doing. And the young guy was fidgeting with this and fidgeting with that and just frustrated, having been out there for two hours. And the guy finally leans over and says, hey, take that cap off, take that thing off right there, that cap and do this and do that. And the guy just looks at him and finally turns back, pulls the cap off, and he does what the man tells him to do. And the guy says, now put the cap back on, screw it back on, and get in the car, and the car will start. So the young guy 
put the cap back on, turned around, got in the car, sat down, looked at the man who had started now back across the street. He was walking back to his car. He hit the ignition, and it cranked right up. And the old man turned around and looked at him, and the young guy was looking at him, startled, and he said, how did you know to do that? He said, my name is Henry Ford, and I made that car. God is God, and he made you. And the good thing is, is if you'll go to his word, he'll give you guidance. And if you walk with him daily, he'll give you guidance. And even if you ask for a sign, I can't tell you if he'll give you one or not, but I will tell you this, he won't zap you for asking. Huh? Father, thank you for being a good father. Thank you, Lord, for Psalm 103, verse 14, that says, you know our frame and that we are but dust. And Lord, there have been times I've asked you, and I don't know what to tell your congregation other than what I told them tonight. I don't know. I struggle with it myself. I don't want to put you to the test. I think you know my heart. I think you know our heart. We want to serve you. And it's difficult, Father, at times in the flesh to make ourselves submit and do what we know we need to do. But, Father, I pray that we would because it brings honor, first of all, to you. It brings you honor. It brought you honor for Gideon to submit himself to you and to go and do. And, Lord, you're going to give him yet another sign in the midst of all this, which just amazes me. How good you are, knowing, knowing his heart, knowing how timid he was, knowing how fearful he was. Yet, Lord, you're going to give him one more sign here in the midst of all this. Thank you for being that kind of God. Thank you for being patient with me. Thank you for being long-suffering. Thank you, Father, for loving me in spite of the fact that so many times I'm so unlovable that I don't even like myself. And yet you love me. And you love us. And Lord, it is so good that we can go home and lie uh, in our beds tonight and put our heads on a pillow and go to sleep confident that you watch over us. And so we say, thank you, Father, for being a father. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.